0: Are we, are we live now? I'm
1: recording. You're, you're, listening, you're listening to. Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella. Mumbrella. Mumbrella Cast.
2: Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows.
1: And I'm Vivian Kelly.
2: Joining us to break down the week in media and marketing is Hannah Blackiston. Hello. Brittany Rigby. Hello. And Zoe Wilkinson.
1: Hello. Later in the Mumbrella cast, we'll be talking to Seven's Kurt Burnett about the impact of COVID on the Seven business.
3: There's just no other way to put that except it's just been a sad moment in time.
1: Does the media buying model need to be updated?
3: They'll tell us, hey, you guys need to change, and they're right. We do and we evolve and we, and we are, but so do they, and I think they're the first to admit that as well.
1: And what success in the next half of the year will look like?
3: So success for those shows is to do better than what it was doing when it, whatever was on before. But first, the week's topics.
1: Big agency exits.
3: Interpublic
2: sells off another agency.
1: Most complained about ads of the year.
2: And more COVID cuts. So we start this week with exits. Viv, let's start with Kieran Moore. I'd say the most respected PR agency leader in Australia, leaving WPP after 17 years. So, Viv, you wrote this one uh, when news broke on Wednesday. How big a hole is Kieran going to leave?
1: Well, I mean, on tenure alone, it's a huge hole. As you say, she joined back in 2003 when the holding group was still STW, and she eventually became the managing director of one of their agencies, Howarth, and then became CEO of Ogilvy PR, which is now OPR. She leaves with an incredibly long job title, which is WPP AUNZ's CEO of PR. GR, which is government relations, experiential and design, and she was also heading up their group communications and marketing role. So that's a lot of responsibility for a lot of agencies and a lot of the holding group's functions to be without a leader.
2: Now, one of the things that always strikes me about Karen as well, I don't I don't know particularly well, but um whenever I have interacted with her or seen her on stage, she just comes across as having so much gravitas. And that's in what can sometimes be quite a fluffy industry.
1: Yes. And I think uh, what WPPAUNZ needs at the moment is that gravitas and that uh, recognition of how much she knows, how many people she knows, what she brings to the role. Uh, Kieran is saying that it was her choice to leave. She uh, said that it was the the right time to seek new challenges and opportunities, which I don't know that I agree that uh, July 2020 is the right time to be seeking out new opportunities given the pandemic and the recession, but uh, maybe Kieran Moore has more opportunities than the rest of us do.
2: Well, another exit this week as well. Um, Viv, you broke the news of this one that Ben Shepard is leaving CHEP, C-H-E Proximity. Um, Ben's a big name kind of in the media agency, media planning and media consultancy space. Um, what do we know, if anything, about his plans?
1: Uh, look, I, I don't know a lot about his plans. Uh he, I do know that he has a 12-week notice period and only tendered his resignation last week. So uh, he's got some time to work that out, as does CHEP, in terms of what they'll do without their chief media officer. Uh, but it, it does appear that, that Ben Shepard has, has just resigned. Uh, the, the CEO of CHE Proximity, Chris Howittson, is confident that the team that Ben has built and is leaving behind can continue to service CHEP's media clients. But I guess it's a bit of a wait and see to see where Ben pops up next. He came across to Chep from PwC. He's also been at OMD. And as you say, he's a big name, so he's unlikely to take a small role.
2: So relatively short time at Chep for Ben, considering he was setting up this sort of new, it seemed, media operation. Clearly very much still a work in progress. About a year, then before that, two years at PwC. Also relatively short. Um what do you think the story is there, Viv?
1: Ah, look, I'm sure there's always more to every story, Tim, but uh, I don't know what's happened behind the scenes with either the role at PwC or CHE proximity. Uh, there's definitely rumblings at the moment that CHEP is going through a period of change. Like most agencies, they have not been immune to restructures and redundancies around the time of COVID. There's a bit of dispute amongst commentators about whether CHEP's redundancies were directly related to COVID or problems that the agency was already facing in terms of how many staff it had versus how much demand there was for their services. So I'm sure I'm sure there's lots of uh, complexities and politics behind the scenes, but you're right. He only joined CHE um, in May last year, and it was a very high-profile appointment to kick off the, the media side of the business and really, really ramp that up. So I always find it interesting if somebody departs a role without somewhere else uh, to publicly announce that they're going, so much like Kieran Moore departing WPP and and Ben departing CHE without announcing what they're up to next. But I'm sure that we'll be writing a story in not too long saying that Ben Shepherd has resurfaced.
2: Well, I think it'll be really interesting to see where he goes as well, because um it feels like in certain roles, for instance, it was one of the real shames about when he was at PWC is he's such an interesting commentator. Um, you know, he writes very interestingly about media. And while he was at PWC, I don't think he was allowed to write so much. He used to, for a while, write a blog called Talking Digital with uh with Liam Walsh, who then went on to run Facebook and is now over at Amobi. And that was such essential reading. Um and, of course, yes, we saw in Chris Howitson's comments, you know, a sort of allusion to his his wider commentary role.
1: Yes. So the CEO of CHE Proximity, Chris Howitson, uh, did reference Ben's extracurricular activities, which include his uh, opinion piece writing and the uh, industry training courses that he's offered, which have helped sort of, as Chris Howitson said, the entire media community so ben definitely has uh interests in expanding his profile and also helping helping the wider industry so i expect he'll take a role that allows him to do that
2: next the man who liked his agency so much he bought it This week, Interpublic sold another one of its agencies to the local boss. This time round, Future Brand Australia's CEO, Richard Curtis, is the new owner. It comes a few months after Ben Lilly bought the local operation of McCann. Zoe, what does this deal look like?
4: So Richard Curtis, who has been the CEO of Future Brand since 2014, um, has taken ownership of the Australian operation of the agency. This way they say they're able to better invest in the Australian market, but it's also going to enable future brand to maintain its ties to the global network so they'll still be able to work on the like global clients and such. In his statement that went out to the media, uh, Curtis said that simply put, I liked my job so much that I bought the company, which I think is a very lovely sentiment. And, um, yeah, it's an interesting move um, from the wider perspective of the industry, uh, particularly for Interpublic as it's a, another sale of one of their Australian operations to the boss.
2: Yeah, we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute and talk, about, talk a bit more about McCann, who are, who we've obviously already um, alluded to. Um, maybe firstly just explain, what does Future Brand actually do?
4: Um, so Future Brand is a brand consultancy that works in everything from the brand planning and strategy to the design and that sort of customer-facing creative appearance of the brand. Uh, so they work on digital brand experience, um, brand innovation, consumer side, and also corporate and service side as well?
2: Well, um, Viv, let me um, bring you in as well because I I suppose it's one of those things you get where, where brand consultancies end and creative agencies begin is always a bit of a point of contention and also uh, what clients should and shouldn't do with them. Um, so it's probably a, 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 a good moment to actually explore that question.
1: Yeah, look, all agencies love to tell clients that they can do more uh, and integrate more services so that they have less points of contact and less invoices to deal with. But I think a good example recently of where this can go wrong or where it can be perceived to go wrong is with Australia's new nation branding, which uh, was accused of looking like the COVID-19 virus instead of something recognisably and authentically Australian and a lot of the blowback to do with that branding design was that it was done by Clemenger BBDO, and which is a creative agency. And a lot of people that don't like that logo sort of say, well, this is what happens when creative agencies get involved in branding and do the research and do the explanation and do the physical branding that consumers are going to say, this is what goes wrong. And a lot of people that don't like the branding from the industry side have said that they actually should have used a branding consultant to develop the brand before then taking it to a creative agency to get the message out there.
2: Should have gone to Richard Curtis
1: <laughs> look i'm I'm not going to make the argument for Richard. Richard can make his own argument, but I do think that's where uh, branding people think that uh, agencies can do it all and that's just an example of when when it can go wrong in terms of an agency taking on a project that maybe they're not a specialist in.
2: And Zoe, obviously, the details of these deals are never actually announced. Uh, it was the same with with Ben Lilly when he 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 bought McCann. Um, the 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 upfront price paid, if there was one, wasn't revealed. Um, I remember listening after uh, after our, our our interview with Ben, listening back to it and kind of thinking uh, thinking a bit more about how the structure of such a deal might work, because of course. You know, similarly to the McCann deal, it looks like Interpublic are selling the rights to carry on being future brand and carry on accessing the international uh, clients. So I wonder if the deal more looks like a promise of future revenue or future profit, but a slice of the take going forwards going to Interpublic as opposed to Richard actually having to come up with a a big pile of money at the beginning to hand over to IPG what do you think of that theory
4: i think that is a very compelling theory and i think my lack of knowledge in the inner workings of acquisitions and mergers probably prevents me from speculating otherwise but i'm interested in how it actually came about like what stimulated the conversation because soon after Ben Lilly returned to McCann, I had the opportunity to chat to him. And he said to me that, um, you know, he wanted to return to agency life. He missed his old company. And so he just asked McCann World Group whether he could, you know, return and is there a possibility he could buy the agency? And they said yes. So I'm curious about how this future brand deal came about and whether it was the same, whether Richard Curtis took the idea from Ben Lilly and ran with it.
2: Yeah, yeah. It could have just been Richard saw it and then saw it happen. Well, I hope you ask Richard whether that's the case. Next, The Week in (laughs) Adland. So we turn to the week in advertising. Ad Standards has just released its list of the most complained about ads for the first half of 2020. Um, Zoe, who are Ad Standards? And more importantly, who's on the naughty list for this year?
4: Ad Standards is the advertising industry's self-regulation organisation. It's basically the industry watchdog, so they have uh, their – codes of ethics, which they apply to ads that are released by brands not just locally but internationally as well that are shown in Australia. Um, And, you know, some are naughty and get struck on the hand by the community panel. Although as this year's uh, naughty list for the first half of 2020 shows, the ads that attract the most complaints aren't always sort of banned from Australian airwaves. So the leader was Ultratune for its ad with Warwick Kappa and Pamela Anderson, which received 309 complaints which were dismissed and all the complaints were based around, you know, sexism and vilification of women, exploitation and then also the dangerous behavior that was displayed by how he was driving the June buggy through the sand at the beach. Following Ultra Tune, there were three entrants from KFC and we've discussed KFC's advertising on the umbrella cast previously. Um, and they've been really sort of pushing the boundaries lately on what they've been including in their ads. The first one uh, that appeared for them on this list was the add with the girl wearing the low cut top looking into looking at her reflection in a car window the window rolls down and there's like two boys sort of like ogling at her and that got 187 complaints and was also dismissed
2: and that one um I guess also deserved um, uh, some sort of conviction for crimes against originality, but they were uh unfortunately that isn't uh, that isn't within the rules. Um, the other thing that struck me looking at this top ten is if you go all the way down to number ten, which is a, a sports bet ad that's the tenth most complained about ad of the year, and it only had seven complaints you know we, we're actually not talking. About a really big volume of ads that offend, you know, the public—more than 25 million people in Australia—in in, in any great depth. Um, is there? Uh, and Viva might get your point of view of, of of this as well. You know, has 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 advertising become a bit safer? Is that why we we aren't seeing as many complaints as we used to? What's going on? Do you think?
1: Uh Potentially, but there's also a a good chance that consumers just don't know about ad standards. I suspect if you walked down the street, more people would have seen and discussed the Pamela Anderson Ultratune ad or a previous horrific iteration of that campaign Uh, they might have been offended, they might have talked about it at the pub, but would they know that advertising has a self-regulator who they can complain to and then the complaints will be addressed by a community panel and then the community panel will make a determination and tell the advertiser and the advertiser doesn't actually have to do anything about it? Do they know that process? Probably not. So, I think it takes a A special type of person, and I think uh, you might be one of these special types of people, Tim, to actually make the effort to bother to complain to ad standards. And I think that's a big factor in the fact that we only see a minimal number of complaints once you sort of get beyond the top two most offensive ads of the year.
2: Well, yes, you do allude to the fact that the one and only time I've ever complained about an ad was was really to see if the system worked, which was actually about a previous Ultra Tune Australia ad, which, uh, in fact, the uh, the the uh, the complaint was upheld.
1: Well, there you go. Do you think self-regulation works, then, Tim?
2: Look, it was fun watching that one be tested, wasn't it? <laughs> um, you know, so um, so so yes, I suppose I felt reassured.
4: I think it's also interesting to bear in mind if we're looking at, you know, the ads that have been included and the number of complaints they got. The top two ads are probably the ones that receive the most mainstream media coverage. Like, you know, you see sometimes ads like this on news.com.au and the Daily Mail. And so in that respect, they can just attract more attention from the general public anyway. But I think it's also interesting to remember, you know, COVID happened in March and that was what, four, four months ago? I don't even know anymore. And that's had a massive impact on the advertising industry and what's being released. A lot of ads are being repurposed or just run for a longer period of time. So, Maybe there was just less material out there for people to complain about.
2: Yeah, I do remember Fiona Jolly, um, at the time the CEO of Ad Standards, al- although um, she's she's in the process of moving on, um, making the point in a previous Umbrella cast that, yeah, we're they were getting a lot of complaints about ads that were now getting a second run because there just wasn't as much in production. Um, also this week, Zoe, a new agency launch, but will it be dead on arrival?
4: Yes, so... A new social purpose consultancy has launched called DOA, which everyone immediately thought meant dead on arrival, but actually stands for Decade of Action. It has been launched by Thinkerbells, Adam Ferrier and Margie Reed with Ebony Gaylord to help businesses sort of really study and consider, you know, what they stand for and what their social values are and what they're presenting to consumers. Viv, you spoke to Ebony earlier in the week about the launch of the consultancy and what does she have to say about it? Look, uh,
1: they're obviously aware of the DOA uh, dead on arrival mind leap that everybody's going to make. Uh, It's not an accident. The point of that play is that this in in their eyes is going to be the most important decade that we face. And uh, Ebony was talking about how they've done a lot of research and mapping in terms of how long it takes to actually affect and enact social change and how long it took to get, for example, LGBTIQ uh, rights and how long it took to get social progress on so many issues and she said it can take 60 to 70 years and her point was we don't have 60 to 70 years if we don't do something in this decade, in this decade of action, then we will be dead on arrival. The planet's going to implode. We're all going to die. It's sort of a now or never thing, uh, particularly at a time when marketers are probably contracting how much they're spending and might not want to give a social purpose agency uh, their few remaining dollars. Her point was you do not have a choice. Uh, If you want to have a planet on which to do your business, this is the decade of action You need to do something now. And uh, she also said that DOA gets people's attention uh, because of the dead-on-arrival reference.
2: And Viv, something that you covered off in the article you wrote was you you were referring to something that uh, Ebony Gaylor said, that uh, the industry is in a bit of a golden era of inauthenticity. Um, Was that something you agreed with?
1: Look, I... I made the point to Ebony about how she will make the agency meaningful and not just virtue signalling. There's so much going on with cancel culture online with uh, brands being criticised for posturing and for pretending to have any kind of corporate social responsibility but the reality behind the scenes being incredibly different. Uh, she sort of said that at the moment they can get away with that authentic that inauthenticity, the, the golden era of jumping on a bandwagon. But she said it's it's not going to last. Uh brands are going to actually have to have a purpose and act on it. I think she's right that uh there are a lot of inauthentic brands out there. You know, she even made the point about mining companies and you just got to think about how much mining companies are responsible for the destruction of the planet. And then you see all of these ads that always have trees, they always have great scenes of nature, there's always a scene from a waterfall or some renewable energy source. And she was sort of saying what we don't need from mining companies is for them to be sponsoring a little sports team or doing a health and wellbeing initiative They need to be doing environmental initiatives to offset the destruction that they're causing on on the planet. So I think she's trying to get brands to think more deeply about what purposes they align with and whether or not it's actually authentic or whether you're just trying to tick a box on a corporate social responsibility form.
2: Next, The Week in Television. And now let's turn to the week in television. First, ratings. We're now into the second half of the year. What's shaking?
0: Yeah, well, we are now into the second half of the year. It doesn't necessarily feel like that in TV ratings. We're still kind of working through those last couple of reality shows that need to finish off before the next round will come through. What that kind of means is, you know, Mondays and Tuesdays are typically big nights, and then Wednesday is a lot quieter. There's actually a um, headline in Crikey today on Thursday as we're recording this for last night's TV ratings. that says, when the chase is better than prime time, you know you're in trouble. Um, So that's kind of what we're looking at, I think. The Voice maybe could be struggling a little bit. Tuesday it had its lowest night this series um, and about 150,000 lower than its usual average rating. But, you know, they're all heading towards that wrap-up and then we'll see what comes after considering we're now kind of outside of that COVID production pause so yeah it'd be interesting to see if that changes things.
2: And sticking with television the Today Show has parted ways with its reliably controversial commentator Pauline Hanson after she said something predictably controversial. What happened?
0: She did. Uh, One Nation leader, Pauline Hanson, has got a regular slot onto or had a regular slot on the Today Show every Monday. And this time her comments were about the Melbourne residents who are currently stuck in lockdown following a COVID-19 outbreak. Specifically, the residents stuck in the towers at the moment. She said, well, she referred to them as drug addicts and alcoholics, said that they don't speak English, which is why they didn't follow social distancing restrictions." She also uh, pushed back on Today host Alison Langdon's comments that they hadn't been given access to food and amenities, saying that a truckload of food had been delivered and that it was all the work of bleeding hearts um, that's been seen across the media. So, yeah, I think that that was about it from her, but it was obviously enough and it sparked quite a backlash on social media.
2: And then Nine very quickly announced that she would be leaving the show.
0: Yes. Yeah, so then later that day, a statement went out from Nine saying that she would no longer be a regular commenter on Today. I think there was a little bit of pushback to that just in, you know, that's a pretty open-ended statement, but Nine have since confirmed that she won't be appearing at all on the network.
2: So, Britt, let me bring you in on this one. Um, the Today show, certainly in the comments afterwards, seemed surprised about the comments Pauline Hanson made. Surely they were exactly what you would expect Pauline Hanson to say, though.
5: I mean, if you're getting Pauline Hanson on to speak on, you know, the news of the day once a week, you're doing that because you know that she'll say things that are, to put it lightly, controversial and to put it not so lightly, you know, racist or otherwise discriminatory or bigoted. So it was surprising to me, Hannah reported on Alison Langdon, the Today Show host, who was also part of that that segment, on her comments that were made after. Pauline and Nine Parted Ways. And I quote, Alison said, we were all shocked. We were all disgraced. I was shocked. I know that Pauline is shocking, but I sat there and couldn't believe what I was hearing. Listening to that tape, I can absolutely believe that Pauline Hanson would say something like that. That is what she is known to say. That's why that show and other shows she used to appear on Sunrise." get her on because they know that she'll say things like that so I think that it's a bit disingenuous to pretend like oh you know we had her on and we thought we'd have this nice discussion and we just can't believe that she said these things yeah it it doesn't it doesn't sit right it doesn't doesn't sound to be the truth to me
2: Well, still with television, Um, since 10 was taken over by CBS, uh, US company, uh, there's less information to be had on how they're going than certainly when the network was on the ASX. But um, Hannah, they do still have to file information with ASIC uh, and that then eventually gets into the public domain. So you've had a chance to see those financials this week. Um, What did they say about the health of 10?
0: So those financials were for the 2019 calendar year. The big headline, I suppose, that everybody ran with was a two hundred twenty-six million dollar loss across the business. That's against uh, just over six hundred million in revenue. That loss kind of encompasses a couple of things. They obviously spent pretty big in twenty nineteen, both across sports rights. They, you know, f- put their money down for the Melbourne Cup. Um, but also across formats they chose to hit it off with The mass Singer, which um, I don't think we've ever had an official how much that costs them, but I know uh, from some of the comments I've heard around The Traps it was not a cheap franchise to pick up. So Ten's official line on this is that it was a year of investment. It was a year to kind of turn their um, chances in the industry around. So I think, you know, obviously they knew these numbers were coming. I don't think they're necessarily disappointed in those numbers either but i think what's really concerning is amid that they also said since march they've already seen a 30 percent drop in income so what i would particularly be worried about if i was 10 was what the numbers will look like this time next year
2: yeah look and i must admit i was surprised to see that 600 million number of revenue for a whole year i just assumed it would be somewhere up nearer the billion now maybe that's just not what tv does these days but um 600 seems low, particularly if it's going to be even lower in 2020.
0: I'm sure Ten would be the first to admit they had a pretty tough 2018. And obviously, 2019 was the year that they turned it around. So I do wonder whether maybe removing COVID from the discussion this year would have seen some better figures for them. But obviously, now it's not going to. I think you're right. I think the other networks do pull in around that billion level. But yeah, I guess with COVID, we're never really, well, it's going to be a couple of years before we really see what 10's able to do.
2: Next, Hannah Talks Telly with Seven's Kurt Burnett.
0: So I am joined by Seven's Kurt Burnett. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today, Kurt.
3: Pleasure to be here, with-
0: we're going to start off with, um, I think it was last week or maybe the week before, it feels like everything's blurring together now, but um, we saw some really kind of sobering data come out of um, SMI. I think it was a 40% drop across the board is it really hard to kind of continue in your role doing business at the moment when all we're kind of seeing are these negative headlines? I guess you're, you know, probably working a lot further ahead than we are at the moment, but how does that kind of impact on what you do in just the day-to-day?
3: Well, I don't think there's uh, there's any playbook that's rolled out for what we're going through at the moment, um, that's for sure. It's, uh, I was saying something before, it's like a Stanford or Harvard degree playing out um, before our very eyes. So, I don't know that uh, there's any specific plan to it, but what we do know is we saw, even as it began in, you know, COVID began in March, that there was going to be a change, a dramatic change in the environment, um, the advertising environment, that is, and that certainly peaked into April and May, in fact. So we reset our expectations, I guess, what we had expected. And um, so when those numbers come through, we kind of know that that's what it's going to be. Uh, mm. You deal with it. You resize the business against it. And, uh, you know, you set the market expectations on that. And so it's it's very difficult. And, you know, difficult decisions were made around that, as everybody every business has. And um, that's the other thing, too. It's I know it's an overused line that we're in it together, but everybody was feeling those sort of numbers. And, in fact, inside that negative result, uh, TV was actually fed. Best, the best medium out of any of the mediums, which is, which is a real testament to television in itself. I think that it that it withstood such a uh, an onslaught of um, you know change and negativity in a particular month. But what we're certainly seeing now is a marked improvement going forward. And it's an interesting thing because uh, I hear a lot about uh, you know where people are looking to um, you know see big, big um, value coming out of the marketplace, and there is. And that's happened in the last few months. And We've been very happy to support a lot of our partners uh, with extra bonus support and just giving them, you know, just helping wherever we can, getting stories out, the good news stories that's happening. And and I think everybody's done a marvellous job across the industry in that, fa- In actually. Uh, but as we move forward into July to September, you know, instead of these minus. 30s and 40s we can see for TV and advertising minus 10 minus 15 and into the back quarter flat to growth you know there's a the possibility of growth into the back quarter just and that's how fast things are changing if you had asked me that question 4 weeks ago I would have said that that's just not even an option but things are changing uh there's a lot more positivity around and uh, it's, uh, you know, brands are, are talking about what it is that, certainly what they're doing next week and the week after, but what it is that we're doing in the back quarter. And so I guess when you see numbers like 40, uh, know that uh, as from what we can see going forward, it's a marked improvement. And uh, I think that's encouraging for a whole lot of reasons, not just Channel 7 or TV or advertising. I think it's a positive for Australia, actually. Uh, we we need some positive news.
0: We definitely do. I think, um, you know, one of the really interesting things we've seen during this time is there's been some really great numbers across TV. I was talking to somebody about this quite recently, you know, not just seven, but across all the networks, there's been some great, you know, kind of evening numbers coming through. And some of those flagship reality platforms are doing really well at the moment. How is that kind of impacting the way brands and advertisers are working with you if we look into like you know the as you said the last quarter of this year and the next year
3: well they've um, certainly been able to take advantage of that I mean to see that sort of viewership go up uh, you know TV and growth and uh, some a lot of the shows news is a you know big impact the reality shows you're talking about we were able to launch Big Brother into an environment that meant um, not just total people or even 25.54, a massive run in 16 to 39 and and younger, in fact. So it actually changed a fair bit of the shape of the audience coming in as well. And what we've found is that certainly uh, the brands that are, are active, and there's some that just aren't able to be in certain sectors, but the ones that are, you know, we, we're just working really quickly inside that and taking advantage of that. You know, we work with one retailer, um, where there was a phone call on a Saturday night between myself and the CMO and the agency. Uh, Saturday night call, an idea, on air, shot, and uh, we changed ad breaks around our news, and it was on on Wednesday night. So we literally in five days turned around ideation to implementation to a very successful campaign. That was around big lift in audience, but also around the environment that was happening at the moment. So I think what we've seen, actually, is... This uh, looks a bit of a buzzword, but it's absolutely true. This agility and creativity has certainly um, gone to a next level. That's one of the big shifts that I've seen and a lot of us have experienced across the industry. And I hope actually it's one thing that we continue to take forward.
0: And let's talk a little bit more about Big Brother. You've kind of said over the last couple of weeks that Big Brother has really been pivotal in turning things around and kind of helping Seven on this content-led growth strategy that you're planning or that you're in the middle of. Um, were you kind of I'm not surprised, but are you how happy are you that Big Brother has done as well as it's done and where does that kind of what position does that put Seven in?
3: Well, I would say that uh, happy is not the word. Absolutely delighted would be more <laughs> the word, Hannah. Um, yeah, look, we uh, on on demos, it certainly has exceeded our expectation and every advertiser that brought into it would also have seen the same. So we had a very clear strategy that James had brought in and we were going to execute on that, which was to bring in uh, fresh, known brands and, and build them. And Big Brother's done that. What it also did was also drive our seven plus product, BVOD product, because that has absolutely uh, accelerated and now moving into representing sometimes 50% of the entire streaming on total BVOD. So it's it's not just accelerated our broadcast demographic um, piece to build on already, which was a very strong sunrise morning show news. Uh, and of course, when sport joined. So we just needed to get those those early shows, right? They're Sunday to Tuesday, seven thirty shows, right? And Big Brother certainly bought that. Uh, we can do, you know, and we wanted to do even bigger things when uh, we announced it's coming back next year. We uh, there's some really exciting things we're going to add to it, but that's just the start. It was very much a a uh, you know a bricks and a wall strategy, brick by brick, and Big Brother was the first of those. And we're going to see Farmer launch. Uh, very soon if I'm once a wife into plate of origin into uh SAS who dares wins and uh of course an extended sports season with AFL and cricket uh, so it's it's very much part of a strategy uh it's we we certainly aren't putting flags on top of hills and calling you know number 1 this or that or and certainly not number 2 but uh what we are very pleased with is the way that it's unfolding. Um, and the plan is coming together. We've still got plenty of work to do. Um, and, and what's interesting, I guess, with all of that is the way media is bought of course, is around uh, your performance in the last last four, six, eight weeks. And what we've seen in the last four weeks is extraordinary numbers for seven, uh, you know, leading 25, 54, 16, 39. Um, and, the Wednesday to Saturday timeframe. So if Wednesday to Saturday, which for retailers is an absolutely key moment, it's 46, 48% uh, of sixteen, thirty-nine, twenty-five, fifty-four. 25, 54. So it's a really dominant um, position through there. And that's helped television overall, so, which is good news. And then going forward, when people are buying, I guess the question is, or not, I guess, I know the question is that they will ask is, where is their momentum going to be? Where can I buy that gives me value across Broadcast and BVOD? Value being buying on last year's ratings, delivering what's ratings that are to come. And that's the same into next year. So, you know, I think it's really placing us in a very, very good position. And it's pretty common that we got out to a slow start by seven standards. Um, there's no question about that. Uh, all our news products are super strong, but our 7.30 shows just did not perform the way we, we had, had hoped. And uh, we're pleased to be able to say that it has uh, going forward um, with regards to Big's brother. And certainly the AFL was a big boon coming back with that and uh, breaking records in its first run out. And, um, you know, we're pretty excited about what's to come.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about AFL a little bit more. Just before you know, just before the returning twenty twenty AFL season came back, Seven signed a new deal, a seven hundred and thirty million dollar deal to keep the AFL around for until twenty twenty four. What is it about the AFL that's so important for Seven, and how does it sit inside that kind of content led strategy for you guys?
3: Well, it certainly has been the driver of the uh, that uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, audience lift. There's no question about that. It also brings in new audience. And uh, we saw when we didn't have the AFL, uh, what it looked like. And when, as soon as the AFL came back, it brought in a whole new audience and a whole new life to the schedule, actually. So it's a very important part of our of our content-led uh, recovery. And uh, it's proven to be the case with across all sorts of demographics. It helps us promote the new shows that are coming. And uh, it also helps... And one of the initiatives that we launched um, a few weeks ago was EVE, uh, which is an enhanced advertising and viewing experience. And AFLs, we've been doing that in the AFL for a while, which is between goals, there's a 30 second or a 60 second spot. So highly engaged advertising in the AFL. Uh, the only place to get an ad inside a goal is on seven. So, that's about engagement and enhancement. And we've taken that same view and same way that we treat the AFL uh, to a point with shows like on big brother, we launched um, uh, solace ad breaks, reduce ad content and um, sponsored ad breaks and just things to bring up engagement. And that's all been lessons from the AFL. So the AFL will end the cricket for that matter, but in sport in general. So, you know, sport, and particularly AFL represents an incredibly engaged and passionate audience base with the ability to give them a message in very short form, and uh, that proved year in, year out to be very, very effective. So I would say not only has the AFL audience been terrific, it's actually taking the uh, learnings inside the AFL. We launched virtual signage last few weeks as well to just help even further enhance that. A lot of brands have taken, uh, taken that on board. So we're able to take some of the innovations that uh, from the AFL and move it into our um, our general entertainment product, which is very exciting. We've got more of that to come, actually, a whole lot more of that.
0: When we um, wrote that story up about you bringing Eve in, there was a lot of comments about, oh, I can't believe nobody's been doing this before. You know, I can't believe people haven't been doing these kind of shorter, more engaged ad breaks before now. Why was now the right time for you to roll that out? And how have you kind of, I know you've been doing a lot of research around it. What are the kind of the, um, what have you seen coming out of that so far?
3: Look, I I have to declare that it's not certainly not the first time anyone's done it. I think we've done it in the past, and other other people have done it, and it's you know been around in the US and the UK. So, what we've been able to do is evolve it to what it is now. Um, so we've taken the very best of what we've seen in the past, and um, we'll continue to evolve it through through the year. And the, the reason that we've done it uh, now was was we've had the opportunity because of COVID to have a bit more freedom to play with some breaks and be a little more flexible. There's no question about that. Do some testing of our own. So we've done that. Uh, But it also was for us, uh, you know, even prior COVID, but certainly COVID accelerated it, we did not want to be the same company coming out that we were going in. We wanted to change the way that we looked, the way that we feel uh, on air and uh, even in trade. And uh, that goes right down to the way that we feel to our viewers, you know, that enhanced viewer experience. So we've used COVID to really accelerate that change. And um, that's why we did it when we did, because now when you watch 7, people won't know exactly what it is, but it should just feel like a better viewing experience. It should just show, um, which will be shown with research, a better advertising experience as a result of that because of higher engagement and all of the elements that we're going to be proving along the way. So that was why we decided to do that. And that's added with the refresh, the brand refresh, which uh, we launched a couple of weeks ago, which is starting to roll out across all our channels. It started with seven. It started with Big Brother, actually, when it launched. Um, and that's, you know, it's as I said, we, we look different. We feel different. We sound different is what the plan will be. And that's just being a different company. Uh, in in respect of, you know, strategy and look and feel um, going forward. So, um, you know, there's some very exciting plans around that and, um, you know, it's uh, given us a great opportunity to be able to do a lot of those things that perhaps, perhaps in a non-COVID environment might have taken a little bit longer.
0: And it's kind of, I think it's great that it's given you that opportunity to kind of try some things out or to roll some things out, but COVID has also unfortunately seen quite a few cuts across businesses. Obviously, all the media businesses are suffering. This is in no way seven specific. Has it been, you know, kind of tough to make these, I know it's not necessarily something that would have come directly down to you, but has it been one of these things where you've had to see some really tough decisions made and how have you kind of justified how these decisions are going to be made to make sure that you're going to come out of this as a stronger business?
3: Yeah, I have to say that, It's been uh, one of the toughest, uh, you know, months of my entire career. Not for me, uh, although it's taken its toll quite clearly as it would on everybody. But there's been some incredibly tough decisions that are made. And, um, you know, we've um, in, you know, it's it's from business and people, it's, it's, it's a, it's a very, very sad. I mean, I've just spoken before about some of the, you know, the positives that we've taken out of it to be able to move forward as a business, but my God, it's been incredibly tough, um, and tough decisions. And, and it's, it's very, very sad. And, uh, there's just no other way to put that, except it's just been a sad moment in time. And, um, you know, it's, it's just been, you know, that word necessary is, uh, is, is the only word I can really use for that. Um, because, Uh, yeah, you've just got to make the calls and do what needs to be done to keep the business going. And um, there's a lot of businesses, I know, feeling it, but uh, we certainly felt it as well. And, uh, you know, we just want to make sure that whatever we do, we make it count because, um, you know, we did not want to have made those tough decisions for nothing, that's for sure.
0: And one of the other conversations that we've seen come out of this and, you know, started happening before this, especially with all the um, ACCC investigations was a look into media buying and a look into what that model looks like going forward. I know um, Tim's kind of spoken about this before, whether the model does need to be reviewed and whether there is a future where perhaps media agencies could be removed from the equation and media owners and advertisers are kind of, you know, working directly amongst each other. How does that look to you and how? what are your thoughts on the current model and what it will look like going
3: forward? I think media uh, agencies play a very, very important role in in the uh, in, in the advertising environment. I think what they are doing is they are changing. They are just like what we are, as media, and they'll tell us, "Hey, you guys need to change," and they're right. We new and we evolve, and we and we are, but so do they. And I think they're the first to admit that as well. The model is changing. Um, everything from the way they're remunerated to the services that they offer. So I think that um, the ones that are actively and quickly working in that space for genuine and authentic reasons um, will will survive. But you know, I, I have a fundamental belief that uh, the the role that they play, uh, apart from working strategically with the agency, is that you do need somebody to be able to ensure that uh, you know things have been pulled together, and um, as audiences become more viable across multimedia, um, and technology comes into it, it's going to become very important to have a, a third party to be ensuring that you know everything's going the way that it should, and all of the values there that it should, um, as well as working very closely with the client. So I, I've, our, our best model that we've seen work, I guess, is the best way to also answer it. The best way forward that I've seen is when You know, if if I talk from a seven perspective, if it's seven and the media agency and uh, the client and sometimes even the creative agency are working together on a particular outcome we're trying to achieve. Uh, All of the best, very best work we've done has been when uh, the combination of that happens. Now, you know, from time to time, I think, you know, there is a a time where uh, media and clients will work closely together. There's an expectation that certainly at the senior level that from client and media that there is um, conversations going on because there's, uh, I don't know, there's a governance you call it, but if somebody's investing a huge amount of money with you as a business, as in a client with us, you know, they want to know the people they're investing with. They want to know some of the, uh, you know, the insights and the insides of the business so that they know that where they're spending their money for the short term and the long term is going to be um, well placed. So that, relationship with the client and the media direct is going to be there all the time and it's going to increase. But there is always a place, in my view at least, that the media agency plays an integral role in that. Um, You know, I I think it's interesting where you know you bring other third parties into it. um, And at the moment there's particular language coming around on the auditors that play you know another part in the mix. And again, there's a place for auditors. Uh, they they do a, an excellent job at uh, working with clients and at board level providing uh, you know that uh, third party governance on, on on the things that they do and they do lots of different work very smart people in that business but I hear things sometimes where this notion of benchmarking against a, a pool that is uh, you know uh, a handful of clients or you know a bunch of clients that um, aren't always uh, advise exactly what they are, and, and I think sometimes that can create some negativity that comes from that, um, and sending off you know wrong behaviors, false behaviors, and sometimes you know stifling innovation and creativity. So I think uh, you know they definitely have a role to play in a lot of other areas, but sometimes you know there is third parties, um, not just you know media agencies that can you know that can uh, make uh, trying to do interesting things harder, um, but uh, you know that's that it's, it's a quite a complex ecosystem. The advertising environment, actually, it, it really is. And for that amount of money that's going around, it sh- it probably should be. But um, one thing is for sure: there's when uh, you know I'm sitting or my team's sitting directly with you know a, a brand or a brand in their agency. You know, we are definitely aligned in what it is we're trying to achieve, and that is that we want them to succeed because if they succeed, they keep investing. So, um, you know, whatever helps do that, whatever help does that, we're uh, we're all for it.
0: And let's look forward now. Um, Obviously, second half of the year is upon us. One of the first ones you've got off the gate coming up is Farmer Wants a Wife. What would success look like for you from that show?
3: Well, I think what's been interesting with our content selection here is um, that shows content is often about the zeitgeist moment, what's happening in the moment. Big Brother, you know, you could suggest was about lockdown, um, and um, and and it's a known format, but we had to get new people into it, and I believe that we have. Farmer Wants a Wife is about uh you know, wholesome and true love. You know, people coming together and finding love. And it's not in a it's not in a um you know catty way. I mean MAFs is a very successful franchise, but this is certainly not that and it's not The Bachelor either. Uh this is a a show that's got a great heart. Um and it's a show that's about you know one of the great communities of Australia and the farmers who have gone through an incredibly tough time of fire and flood and drought and COVID. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think it's going to find that special place in Australia's heart. It's just, you know, the shows is about the psyche a lot of the time. And we feel like that's going to hit a good place in psyche, in the Australian psyche. Um, You know, as, as with this plate of origin, by the way, because the promos that's running now, and I've seen a number of the shows, and they're amazing. And it's very much about multiculturalism. And right now, and Black Lives Matter, and you know, multiculturalism is a is such a significant uh, social subject matter here. And in Plate of Origin, it's it's the celebration of multiculturalism in cooking. So when you think about pharma and you think about Plate of Origin and the way that we've positioned that, we believe that it has a very very uh, important um, Place f- to play in, enter- in, in entertainment for Australia right now. So success for those shows um, across broadcast and Bevod and um, you know Seven Plus because uh, you know the viewing is going to take place across all of those things um, is to do better than what it was doing when it whatever was on before. So if we're able to get um, you know similar numbers that we are with Big Brother um, and beyond that, um, you know we'd be we'd be very happy. Uh, we've in the slots that those particular shows are coming to, um, we're about um, incremental improvement in each of those slots, and that's what buyers look for as well. They look for growth, uh, they look for, va- and that creates value in CPMS. And wherever those shows are placed, we haven't fully announced exactly those slots publicly, but wherever those pl- those are placed, they will deliver increased audience year on year. And so that's what success looks like for us. Wherever those slots fall, those shows fall, growth in those slots will be success. Growth, the continued growth in uh, 7 Plus uh, will be success. Bringing more people inside 7 Plus to view will be success. So we've got very clear metrics on what it is, and we've got a uh, number of partners on both of those shows. Uh, they all have their numbers, and they know what success looks like so that's uh that's success for us too
0: fantastic well, thank you so much for joining me Kurt
3: thank you hannah uh it's It's great to, to be talking and uh you know it's it's great to see just finally uh you know that uh television is doing um what it's doing so well and i'm very pleased to be able to say that you know there has been total audience growth, and uh, it's you know it's it's proven to be a very effective medium through very difficult times, and uh, I think it's a it's a really good thing, and um, you know very happy that seven inside that's also playing its part for growth, and it's um, it's a difficult time, but I believe that there is uh, more positive times ahead, and I think you know just finally I think we can look forward to what I believe will be one of the most important back quarters and probably one of the largest back quarters that we've seen in many, many years as people and brands look to end uh, 2020 with a bang because uh, it's certainly been a uh, horrible (laughs) um, (laughs) middle of the 2020. So um, we're looking forward to a much more uh, positive end to the year and certainly what we're seeing in the the numbers we're seeing are, are, are suggesting that. I think that's what the whole
0: industry is hoping for. So, yeah, let's hope for that. Thank you so much. Thanks,
2: Hannah. Next, more COVID cutbacks. So even before this week's setbacks in Victoria, we've been seeing more bad news in the market. Britt, let's start with Publicis.
5: Yeah, Publicis has admitted that 34 roles are at risk of redundancy. And when I chased this, it was interesting to me that they issued a statement at all. I was very prepared for there to be a no comment. I mean, it's tough enough sometimes to get Agency groups to confirm that there's been redundancies when we absolutely know there's been redundancies, let alone when there's just redundancies kind of planned or on the horizon. So I think it's worked in publicists' favour in that the the wider sentiment, I suppose, has really been, okay, well, they're saying that you know this is the very last resort for them. They've said that they've saved kind of 80 jobs through other cost-cutting measures like restricting expenses and annual leave and voluntary salary reductions from leadership. And so the fact that we're this far into COVID and it's only at this point that they're having to turn to job losses and the job loss numbers are what they are, which is fairly small. Um, They did point out that 34 possible redundancies is 2% of its workforce in Australia and New Zealand I think that by getting ahead of it, they've actually, they've turned the story around a little bit in that it seems less like, oh, terrible holding company cuts more jobs and leaves people out on the street in the middle of a recession.
2: And, Brit, while we're talking about cuts, some Australian community media, uh, partly owned by Anthony Catalano, also making cuts this week.
5: Mm, four printing centres, so those are in Albury, Ballarat, Canberra and Murray Bridge. So Canberra and Murray Bridge were already closed in April when they closed or paused I should say more than 150 of their non-daily titles and stood everyone down in those printing centres as well as at the newspapers. Uh-huh. But yeah, they apparently don't have the demand to bring those printing centres back now that they've announced that, you know, those non-daily titles are still not running in a lot of instances. And so they're closing not only those two, but another two as well.
2: So Viv, with your real estate expertise from your previous uh, life, um, one of the cynical thoughts when when Nine decided to sell the kind of community portfolio to uh, Anthony Catalano's consortium was a big part of that $100 deal. The thing that made it safe for him was the fact that there were lots of you know land assets involved, all of these print works, obviously on reasonably big footprints. um a cynic might ask the question, um, is this the moment when they'll start selling off some of those those print sites and getting some of their investment back?
1: Look, for people who said last year on the thirtieth of April when it was announced that Catalano had bought uh, these assets from nine and they thought that he'd paid too much or that the deal didn't make sense as soon as you understood the property play involved, it did make sense. And I'm looking at the story now that I wrote last year and it says, Mumbrella understands that the deal does include significant property assets. And that line was not in there by accident. Uh, There was lots of speculation that Catalano was trying to create a massive real estate roll-up. You know, he's also got an investment in a media agency which deals with property clients called Tomorrow, and he admitted that in his Fairfax days he had great dreams of a big property roll-up, you know, uh, where he said that during his time at Fairfax he could buy advertising agencies in the real estate space, close the loop, and then you could independently advise your clients to advertise in REA, Domain's rival, and you'd completely own the network and nurture the circle of interest in that category, he said. So, he can't do that at the moment because he's got a three-year deal with Nine for advertising uh, in, in their assets as a sort of part of the deal. What he can do is start making some money back on the properties, including the print centres and and the offices and everything. And I think he would definitely be looking to make some money from this deal because Whilst he would have bought it knowing regional media is not a huge moneymaker, he probably also wasn't expecting the pandemic and the bushfires to compound those problems so much more.
2: And at least if he does want to uh, sell that land, um, he'll be able to uh, get a good price on the ads. <laughs>
1: Well, yes, he will be able to get a good price on the ads uh, for for the listing, but also if anyone can get a good price in a property deal, it's Anthony Catalano, despite the catastrophic state of the commercial property market at the moment. Uh, I'm sure if anyone can do it with his connections and as you say, with his ability to cut some deals with the listings and the agents, then it's him.
2: Well, that is almost it for this week. But before we go, I would just like to remind you about the Publish Awards. With the difficulties we've been talking about facing the publishing world this year, Mumbrella thinks it's more important than ever to run the Publish Awards. We'll be celebrating the very best of what the publishing industry has to offer, including the one-off special category of best response to COVID-19. And in recognition of the challenges being faced by the publishing industry, we've also lowered the usual price of entry by $100. Find out more at mumbrella.com.au forward slash publish awards. That is it for this week though. Thank you everyone.
1: Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.
2: Toodle Peb.